Open your Bibles, if you would, to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. Over this past weekend, um, we had a little 10-year-old gal come and stay with us, emergency placement from DSS. She came because of suspected human trafficking. Thankfully, it proved to not be true. But here you have this beautiful little gal, fearful, afraid, sad, wondering what's going on. She was Romanian, spoke little, very little English. So we're using Google Translate to try to help her think through what she wants for breakfast or pictures, you know, eggs, <laughs> French toast, you know, pancakes, yes, chocolate chips, you know, my husband says, yeah, chocolate chips in Romania. Thankful for a thing like the Bible app. They will pull out my Bible app while we're driving. It will pull up John 3 and have it read it to her in Romanian. What a blessing to have the gifts and abilities that we have with technology. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Why do you think she spoke Romanian? Any guesses? Well, she, she, she was born there. That's her native tongue. It's natural. That's her culture. It's Romanian. She speaks Romanian. She thinks Romanian. She drinks in Romanian. Language is powerful. Over 10 years ago, a study was done that showed that language can impact the preferences that we make. This came from doing a study with bilingual people. They take a bilingual person, they give them the exact same test in two different languages. You would assume the same person would make the same choice for each one. But they didn't. Their language skewed their preference. Because language is more than just words. It's culture. It's who we are. It's part of what we do and why we do what we do. It invades us. It pervades us. Well, why on earth are we talking about this today? Because I think this may help us understand what Paul is driving at as he's starting to wrap up this letter of Titus 3. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, in order to be saved, he must be what? Born again. Meaning, you have a native tongue, a native language, a native culture, a native mind. The old man the flesh. That is what we grow up learning, speaking, thinking. In order for you to know Jesus as Savior, you have to be born again. So Nicodemus is like, so I, how on earth do I get back to my mother's womb? Jesus, no, no, no. It's not going back to your mother's womb to being, you need to be born of the Spirit, which Bob prayed about today. To be made new, to have a new mind, a new heart, a new language a new way in which we act, think, and speak. So even though we are in a culture here on earth that most of these people are speaking old man ease, we're supposed to be living and speaking and thinking Christian ease. Paul speaks of us as Christians being foreigners, aliens here on earth. We are, as it were, pilgrims in this land, sojourners, as Hebrews talks about. 
Once we accept Jesus, again, we have this new mind, new heart, new way of doing what we do, but we're still battling flesh, and so you have this constant battle. Talk to somebody that can speak more than one language. There are a few of them in the room. And ask them, what language do you think in? What language do you dream in? Let me ask you, Christian, what language, not English, not Spanish, not an earthly language, what language do you think, dream, and speak in? The old man or the new? The flesh or the spirit? The reason why we say this is because if we know Jesus, we have been given a new heart, a new mind, a new way to live, act, think, and speak. If we know him, then we will live like him, even though we are behind enemy lines. So turn and look at Titus 3. Here we'll see in Titus 3, 1 through 7, that we are to be ready for every good work because God has saved us by his mercy and grace. We have to be ready for every work because God has saved us by his mercy and grace. Look at Titus 3, 1, remind them, Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. First, we see how we ought to live. If we know Jesus as their Savior, how ought we to live? Titus says in 3, 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers, to authorities, obedient, to be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. There are seven things that are listed here. Seven things that he is to remind the people of. Remind them. Why do you need to be reminded? Anybody here besides myself feel like they have early onset dementia? I can't remember the names of my kids, but I believe we have three. And I need to be reminded all the time. That's in life. That's at work. It's also in church. Hey, ding dong. Did you forget you're supposed to do these things? Yeah. Welcome to humanity. Get back on track, pal. All right. Yeah, (laughs) probably true. But one of the seven things we're supposed to be reminded of. First, be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be submissive is to put yourself under. How many here like, let me rephrase that, how many here love to have somebody over them telling them what to do. Anybody? Anybody? Not? I don't see a lot of hands. You don't like having somebody over you telling you what to do? Hmm. 
you must be human. But that's that sense of we don't like all the time people telling us what to do. And if you think of be submissive to authority, well, the knuckleheads in power, I mean, elected officials are about as trustworthy as great white sharks. And I ain't swimming with them. They're out for number one. That's it. And that may be true for many. But may I call your attention to a, a short history lesson. Who is in power right now? Rome. Who's the emperor at this time? Nero. I think you'll find Nero had much in common with the great white shark. Devour, kill, and do anything he could to stay in power. Including the people like Paul, who's writing this very letter. Who signed his own death sentence. So Paul writes, submit to them. Paul, how on earth can you say that? You know who this herd is. You know who's in power. I have next here on our screen, you'll see Romans 13, 1 through 2. Listen to what Paul says about authorities. Let every person, you find yourself in that description, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. I don't like that last line. I don't want to incur judgment. What is Paul saying here? Where does all authority come from? Where does it come from? God. So if we resist and if we refuse to submit to those God has placed above us, who are we actually refusing to submit to? Who are we actually resisting? God. Mom and dad, you want your children to submit to you? Guess where you should start as an example? They're watching you. How you talk about the government? How you talk about their teachers? How you talk about your boss? And they follow suit. When we resist the authorities, so children, you're like, well, you don't know who my parents are. Do you remember who Nero was? Paul says, you submit yourself to the people God has placed over you, not because they're good. This is not good and evil. This is not Democrat, Republican, or independent. This is God is sovereign. Do you believe he's sovereign? Do you believe he has the whole world under his thumb? Do you believe there's nothing that goes outside his notice? Do you believe that he can put people in power to accomplish his will? Like Pharaoh? Even evil people he can work through to release millions of Jews? Do you believe he can do all this? Then yes, then trust him. Trust a living, sovereign God. He's got the whole world in his hands. So take a breather, pal. Relax and trust him. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Do you believe God is in control? You're like, well, does it mean we can do nothing? No, vote. Write a letter if you need to. Call them if you need to. Visit them in person if you need to. But submit to them 
like you'd ask your children to submit to you because it's the same word. Peter uses the word honor. The same word they're told children honor and obey, same word honor. Peter says honor the king. The same honor you want your children to give to you, you give to those in authority because they're good? No. But because God is and he's placed them there and we can trust God, not man. We don't trust them to deliver us. No matter what laws we enact, we still have a sinful nature. We trust a good God that he can change hearts. Can he change hearts? Can he accomplish his will? Then we trust him. Next, Paul says, not only to submit to them, we're supposed to be obedient to them. Obey them. Obey our authorities. The word translated obedient is a rare New Testament word. It's used only five times. The word actually means, it's compound word, it means to be persuaded by one's rulers. You're to be persuaded by them. Now, some of you are already thinking, oh, hold on, hold on. What if they, what? Ask me to do something that goes against Scripture. Now, let's be very clear. It needs to go against Scripture, not against your sense of self-righteousness. Not against the Constitution. Not against the Bill of Rights. If they ask you to do something that goes against Scripture, then what are you to do? Well, Peter answers this in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. Where the government contradicts clear Scripture, we must follow God's Word. Now this was extremely, I thought this was a simple thing to do. Lines were real simple, and then the pandemic came. And this, this text became real muddy. Real muddy. Because we want to submit to the government, but we're also told to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But if the government's goal is the health and welfare and being of, of the people, should we, well, the health of the people? Will we cancel for snow? Or what about, what do we do? Shoot. That's not easy. And it's not. And it stinks. So what do we do? Well, all I can tell you is what we tried to do. We tried to pray and beg Jesus for wisdom. And then, as I told you, I called my dad, and he didn't have an answer because he never been through this either. Well, thanks for nothing. <laughs> there goes my exact words. <laughs> it, sometimes it's real simple. And I thought this was a pretty simple, clear cut. But, man, it got real muddy real quick. So being led by the Spirit, we want to follow Romans 13. We want to follow Acts 5. One author helpfully said it this way, the state's authority has been delegated to it by God. This means that our first loyalty is to Him, is to God, whose authority it is. And if our duty to Him comes into collision with our duty to the state, then our duty to God takes precedence. We follow the Lord. In the times where it's muddy and murky, then fall on your knees and beg the Lord for wisdom. That's number one. Number two, the third, uh, sorry, number two, the third reminder is to be ready for every good work. Be ready for every good work. To be ready is to be prepared. What does it mean for you to be prepared for every good work? This is what, what I call a mother's purse. Do you know what a mother's purse is? It's a survival kit for your family. It's ready for anything. As a kid, you could sit in Sunday and ask your mama for anything, and she could dig it out of her purse. Gum, mint, 
toenail clippers, right? So she's probably got that in there. 20 bucks, a pack of crayons, a lost sock, something's in there, a tent. What do you have in there? It's a survival kit. In case your family breaks down on the side of the Sahara, you have five gallons of water, you have a GPS cell phone, you got everything covered. Mama's ready. Christian, in the same way, be ready for every good work. Now, how does mom get ready for this? I don't know, because I don't do it. (laughs) But if I was to take a guess, I'm assuming she thought through what could possibly happen in the next day, in the next week, wherever you are. And she's pulled everything from every cabinet in the home and has placed it neatly in this multi-extension layered bag. Christians, how can we take that and apply that? To be ready. Do you think through what's this day going to bring, the next week going to bring? What opportunities might the Lord put in my path? Not to do good work for my boss, but I'm ready for every good work. So when my coworker comes in, and I know they're going to come in at this time of the day because it's what they do every week, and they complain about this, I'm ready to do good work for them on Jesus' behalf. I've prepared myself. So I'm thinking about, yes, I need to get my work done, but my eyes are constantly vigilant. Who can I help? Who can I help? Man, you know what's going on here? Here it is. I'm ready for it. Jesus loves you. He cares. Let me show you how. They're ready for every good work. Bob talked about this in his prayer that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. That's one of those ways that we do that. We're just prepared. We're ready to do good work for them. Number four, it says that we are to speak evil of no one. Let me read that again. Speak evil of no one. That doesn't mean a lot of clarification. How are you doing? Do you need to be reminded of that? When you speak, are people hearing the language of the flesh? The old man, when you speak, are they hearing the language of Christ? Amen. Starting with your authority, our president, whom we are to submit to and obey, and it flows down to your boss, your spouse, your family, your friends, your neighbor, your classmate, your teacher, and even the person that drives you nuts. Speak evil of no one. James 3.9, James talks about our speech. He says, listen to this in James 3.9, that with our tongue, with our speech, we bless the Lord our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Is it possible that a Christian could come here on Sunday, honor God with their lips, and then Monday morning, speak evil of somebody made in the very image of God. Is that possible? James continues and says, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. God, help us. God, help us. Number five, avoid quarreling. Hey, you have a sibling? Hey, kiddos. Hey, kids. You have a sibling? 
stop it. Stop quarreling. And before you applaud mom and dad, you have a spouse, stop quarreling. Grandma, grandpa, stop quarreling. You don't have to be right, even though you're really sure you are. Stop quarreling. Number six, be gentle. In Mark eleven twenty nine, Jesus said that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Question, are you as gentle with sinners as Jesus was? Are you as gentle with saints as Jesus was? What would you have said if Peter would have denied you three times when you first saw him? Your question would have been, do you love me? It may not have been a question. It may have been just a straight whip, jack to the face. Jesus, gentle, lowly, forgives, forgets, embraces. He's gentle and kind. Lastly, number seven, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Perfect, perfect courtesy towards the people you like. No? Perfect courtesy to the people you can endure. Perfect courtesy to all people. All people. Some translations have humility or meekness. It's a sense of lowering who you are. You're not the great I am. Neither am I. I'm elevating who they are. I'm putting their needs ahead of my own. They're made in the very image of God. I will treat them as such. Anybody else feel the old body blows from this text so far? Sweet mercy, Jesus, help us. That we would go out in the world and live like Titus 3.1 and 2 tell us to live. That we would speak with a new mind, a new heart. We would live out this new action that Jesus allows us to live. That they might see and hear him through us. And not our old language. Not our old ways. These are seven things. The language of Christ. This is how Christians are to live. We are to be ready for every good work. Ready for every good because God has saved us by his grace and mercy. Next, we see how we used to live. How we used to live. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, as slaves to various passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does this verse look familiar to you? Verse 3. As you look back at the scrapbook of what you were before Jesus, does this remind you of who you were? And you're like, well, pastor, I was saved as a young kid. You know, I don't know if, read it again. Were you foolish? Even as a five-year-old? Yep. Disobedient. Led astray. Slave to passions and pleasures. I was. Passing our days in malice and envy. Did another kid have something that you wanted? Hated by others and hating one another. You hear kids and teens and adults saying, I hate. 
people hate you. This is your native tongue. This is the language you were born in, the culture you were born in, the flesh, the old man. This is what life looks like apart from Christ. It's even more reason why we as Christians should be ready for every good work. Because God has saved us from this by his mercy and grace. Now what led to this change? So how did we get from what we are, from what we were to what we are? So how were we changed? Look at verses 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of our works, which Bob mentioned, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This section, man, is glorious. It's glorious. We're going to look at some things that we learn about Jesus. Just look at our next point here. We see the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation. He came down in flesh, incarnate, in flesh. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, Jesus came down. Because we cannot climb a ladder high enough to God, He came down. There's nothing we could do, no goods we could do to ascend to the heights of heaven, to become holy like He's holy. So God came down to us to make us holy. He came down. Jesus, the gift of God, came wrapped up in the goodness and loving kindness of God. So how do you know, friend, how do you know that God loves you? Jesus came down. He's the very goodness and the loving kindness of God made tangible. You could put fingers on that. He lived. He, you could touch him. You could feel him. You could see him. You could watch him die for your sins. How do you know God loves you? He gave his son for you. Jesus came down. Next, we see the mercy of Christ. Verse 5, he saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We've heard the joyful sound. What is it? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. How does he save? Verse 2. How does he save? Paul's going to give us two things, two statements. One's going to help clarify how he does not save. And one statement to clarify how he does save. So how does he not save? What doesn't work for salvation? Because of works done by us in righteousness. We can understand this concept that just because you do good things doesn't take away the bad that you've done. So if we go to jail today, we find somebody that's a convicted rapist. We pull them out of jail. How many good works must that person do to erase the crime that they committed? How many good works should they do before the judge to say, you know what? Innocent. Free to go. How many times? You, you can't think of a number, can you? What if it was your friend, your family member, whom they did that to? The anger level rises. Well, there's no way. They should rot in jail till they die. Friend, 
we have sinned against the holy God. And His holiness does not tolerate sin. Our sin cost the life of His Son. His Son died in our place because of our sin. What can you do? How many good things can you to erase before God say, you know what, it's okay, forget it. We don't, you don't need Jesus. You did it all by yourself, even though you sinned against me. There's no number. It's not by righteousness. We can't do it. We can't do the work in and of ourselves. So how then can we save, can be saved? If I can't save myself, I can't do enough good things to get there, how then can I be saved? He says what in verse 5? According to his own mercy. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor, our sins. They are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen. And amen. Mercy is God keeping from you, friend, what you deserve. Because we have sinned against the Holy God, we deserve death in hell, eternal separation from Him. That stinks. That's bad news, and it is. But God, being rich in mercy, He keeps from you what you deserve. He can keep that from you. He can save you from the punishment you justly deserve. This is His mercy. And His mercy as Savior doesn't stop there. Just keeping from you what you deserve. He also gives good gifts. Look at number five. We see the gift of Christ. The mercy of Christ, the gift of Christ. Verse 5, he saved us not because of our works by us, right? So according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Before his death on the cross in John 14, 15, and 16, you can read that in each chapter. John 14, 15, and 16. Before Jesus' death, he promised that after he died, it would be better for us because he would send us a good gift. What was that gift? the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will guide us into all truth. He'll convict us. He will lead us. He can renew us. He can wash us. And look at the terms described here. And before we get there, you're like, well, what's so great about the Holy Spirit? Isn't he like, you know, out of the, you know, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, he's like, you know, the, you know, want to be, he's a, he's bottom. He's fully God. Fully equal with the Father. And we'll see the three in this paragraph. Look at these, look at this paragraph. God the Father pours out God the Holy Spirit through who? God the Son. All three working in tandem. All three bring about your salvation. If you're wondering how, what now what does the Holy Spirit really do? Read what he does in verses five and six. What does he do? He washes you. That's, that's pretty good. He washes you. Look what else he does. He regenerates you. That's pretty necessary. What is regeneration? Giving life. He breathes 
life into you. Like God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2, man became a living soul. The Holy Spirit breathes life into you and makes you awake to Christ. Awake to the Savior. He breathes life into you. He renews you. One way used to find this word renew us, com- a complete change for the better. He's the one that gives us the new heart, a new mind, a new language, and a new spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. It is an integral part of our salvation. The gift of Christ. Next we see the grace of Christ. Verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are saved by God's mercy and we are justified by God's grace. What does it mean to justify? To be justified means that something has been done for you and something has been said about you. Something's been done for you and something's been said about you. Well, what's been done for you? You've been justified. To be justified is to make right. Though a miserable, though a miserable sinner, Jesus can make you righteous. Not with your own righteousness, but with his. But what's been said about you, like a courtroom, God our judge stands and issues a verdict. When you are saved, you're not declared innocent. Declared better than that. You're declared righteous. In our day and age, so if you were blind or you don't know what the internet is, you may have missed that there was a court hearing between two popular celebrities. Which, if you think through Titus 3, 1 and 2, you're like, oh, sweet mercy. Speak evil no one. No quarreling. And you think, well, it's just nonstop. You hear something new every day, you go, oh my word, what is going on? A verdict was given. Let me tell you what was not stated by the judge. That anybody that took the stand was righteous. They gave a verdict and money was supposed to be dished out. They may have won, but they're not righteous. God declares you, God, the holy God, who sees into your very soul, who knows everything you've said, done, and thought, declares you not innocent, righteous. Righteous. Now, how is that possible? That he could declare me Righteous, what does the text say? Well, we are justified, how? By grace. Mercy is God keeping from you what you deserve. Grace is God giving you what you do not deserve. You do not deserve the grace of God. So you and I here stand on trial before a holy God. He asks you, how do you plead? And what do you and I say? Guilty. Guilty. We confess our sin. Guilty. Our advocate, our mediator steps in front. I will take their debt. I will pay their sin. The judge looks at our advocate, Jesus Christ. You'll take their debt, their sin, even though they plead guilty. I will take their debt. I will pay for their sin. The judge then takes all of our sin and just dumps it on the sun. He endures the wrath of God on that day. He died for your sin and for mine. And he takes the righteousness 
that was his tongue, and he robes us in it. And he declares with that gavel, you are righteous in my sight. That, my friend, is grace. God made you right. That's what gives us this new mind, the new heart, the new tongue. That's what gives us this new language to speak and act. He has made us righteous, and this grace does more than make us righteous. It also makes us heirs. Lastly, look at verse 7. So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we receive God's salvation by His grace, we're not just righteous, and He says, you're on the will. You're on the will. What will? Your will? Oh, Melly. God's will? There's a couple wills you want to be on in this world. It ain't mine. You can end up owing somebody something. <laughs> you're, you're an heir of the king? And I'm his son. He gave me his name. I'm an heir of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm a prince. I'm a princess. He called my name. He made me his own. What grace is this? Oh, Christian, how should this change how we live? Do you receive his mercy? Have you received his grace? Has he given you a new heart, new mind? Then it should be a new mouth. And there should be new actions. And we should be speaking and the world should be hearing. What language is this? It's Christian. I'm his. He is mine. Oh, I see it from them. They shouldn't hear you speak and go, you're one of us. It should be like, your co-workers ought to be like this little gal, trying to, us trying to help this little gal, trying to point. You know what scramble eggs are? Oh, I can't have that. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. No. Give me Google Translate. Because I'm speaking Christianese. I'm living out Christ in front of my world. God, help us. So what does all this mean for us today? That we are to be ready for every good work. We ought to be ready for every work. Why? Because God has saved us by his mercy and grace. He saved us by his mercy and grace. We ought to be ready for every good work. First off, friend, what, what can you apply? Have you ever received the mercy and grace of Jesus? Has there ever been a point in time where you have come to know him as your Savior? He's forgiven you of your sins. See that anyone that claims to be a Christian must first admit that they're sinners. That we see that in verse three. That's who we are. One author said of this: against the dark backdrop of believers' pre-conversion existence, so but what we were, this puts in stark relief God's saving grace, resulting in regeneration, renewal, enabling believers' good works. It also shows that the only thing separating believers from unbelievers is the saving grace of God. Friend, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're like, well, what's so different between me and you? Only this. 
I have received his grace. I beg you to do the same. Because I'm the same person that you are as we look at verse 3. But he's made me new. It's the only difference. I have received his grace. Would you receive him today? You can do that by admitting that you, like I, or you are sinners, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and call on his name. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you do that today? Second, for all those that are here and claim to be Christians, let me ask you a few questions. Reviewing the reminders given in verses 1 through 2, look back at those. Which one needs work? If they're all seven, pick one that you can work on this week. By God's grace, I'm going to be ready for every good work. Why? Because you can become more righteous in His eyes. You're already righteous. Because I love Him. And I want to obey Him. If you were to obey these reminders, how might God be able to better use you for His kingdom? If we were simply obedient to follow the commands in 1 and 2. Next, looking at verse number 3. Do any of these describe you today? Do any of these sins in verse 3 describe you today? So I mentioned at the beginning, you're to be living and speaking a new language within a new culture. If you're a Christian, God's given you new birth, a new mind, a new heart. Are you speaking and acting out Christianese? Would others see you living out the descriptions of the flesh in verse 3? If you find yourself in verse 3 in any way, brother, sister, repent and come back. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repent and come back like the prodigal son because his arms are what? They're open wide. Of sins there are many, his mercy is more. Come back to him. Lastly, what statement in verse 4 through 7? Look back at those descriptions of who God is and what he's done, verses 4 through 7, of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit. Which of those statements causes you to rejoice? Automatically causes you to rejoice. How might your week be different if you focused in on that statement each and every day? Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Then Tuesday, thank you, God, for your mercy. On Wednesday, thank you, God, for your mercy. What is it? May we be reminded Remind them, rather. May we be reminded of these things. You'll see in verse number 8, this statement is trustworthy. You take it to the bank. God saves by His mercy and grace. So Christian, be ready for every good work. Let's quiet our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Let's take 30 seconds and let's ask the Lord, Lord, would you have me do? Would you have me change? Friend, if you're here and again, you don't know the Savior, Talk to your Christian friend you came with. Talk to myself. Another member of our church, we'd love to walk you through how you can know Jesus as Lord. But let's review these things. And ask the Lord, what would you have me do? I'll pray, and then we'll close. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. mercy and grace 
Father, we thank you that you can declare someone like us, someone like me, as righteous. Spirit, we thank you that you wash, that you regenerate, that you make us new. For you, holy God, the great three in one, help us this week to live as though we have received your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.